Hey. Hey. All right, I want to introduce you uh, to my family real quick. You guys might have seen my sister has come up to camp with me. She's helped me with my kids all around. She's the GOAT. She's like a superhero. She's uh, really filled in in kind of the absence of Paige. Um, but I wanted to show you, this is a picture of my wife and I. That's my wife, Paige. Yeah, she's Louise. Oh, it like eats my insides. Um, that is my wife, and she, yeah, she's just the best. Uh, this is my family as we are today. <laughs> Crushing it. Yeah. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, why did he choose the thug life? I didn't. Thug life chose me. All right. All right, that's enough. That's my family. That's, if you smell what the rock is cooking, that's all I'm saying. Um, tonight, uh, we're going to be in the book of John chapter 8. As you start to turn there, let me kind of preface what we're going to go through. Uh, and here's the roadmap for what we're going to talk about. I'm going to start by uh, talking through the story of Jesus interacting with this woman caught in adultery. Um, in some cases, she's known as the prostitute, the promiscuous woman, the woman caught in adultery. We're going to talk through that. It's a really interesting interaction when a rabbi interacts with a prostitute or what could be perceived as such. And we're going to talk about the way that he responds to that. Secondly, we're going to jump into the, the truth about sin, okay? Uh, and maybe some, some of the more common deceptions when it comes to sin. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about what are the three biggest deceptions or the three biggest lies that we tend to believe about sin, about our destiny, about the world, and about God, and how those can lead us into a position, into a place that can be, uh, can I have eternal consequences? That's kind of where we're going to go tonight. So we're going to start with John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1. Again, if you're new to the Bible, there's four guys that wrote an account of the story of Jesus, basically biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look, I know y'all are hot too. I know this room is hot. I'm going to try to get us out of here quickly so you can go back to your cabins and have discussions. I just want you to know I'm aware of it, and the lights are also hot up here. Thank you guys, though, for just showing respect and sticking me with it, and I know it's, it's hot and it's sweaty at this point of the week. You're tired. Uh, some of you guys were up to like 3 o'clock running around in the streets. Buck rock. And it was great. Uh, anyway, but I, I just appreciate you walking with me through this. And, and the reason that it's important to me, uh, it's not because as a communicator, um, it's somehow hurtful to my dignity to see you dozing off or sleeping or not paying attention. It's because of my deep, deep love for you and how important I think this is. Like if, if I thought this was unimportant, I would get on stage and be like, here's five minutes and walk out. Um, I, think, I really think tonight and tomorrow night has the, has the propensity and it has the ability to change your whole life and your eternal life. And so I'm, I guess I'm asking you, maybe kind of pleading with you, you're fighting against all of the, the issues of camp, of fatigue and tiredness and heat and boredom in some cases because you're tired of hearing my dumb voice talk. But I'm asking you, okay, okay. but just lean in, lean in, lean in. Okay, here we go. John chapter 8. Here's what it says. Uh, John chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Okay, so we pause here. This is important to understand. Um, in, in this day and age, in order to, be, to use the word caught in adultery, it wasn't that someone checked this woman's text messages and found out that she was sending uh, promiscuous things back and forth to a guy that she wasn't married to. This is a woman caught in adultery. When it says someone was caught in adultery, in order to pronounce the death sentence on them for being in a religious system and you were caught in adultery, it meant that you had to be caught in adultery. So this is the, the belief here, and I would go along with it, is that this was an active plot against this woman in order to catch her, to throw her before Jesus. So, right, it, it, it would probably be hard if you had a brain in your skull to be in a situation where two people, you needed two witnesses to catch you in the act of adultery. So if you're trying to be sneaky and you're trying to hide something and that you're caught in this position, just imagine being this woman. And, and again, we live in modern American society where adultery is absolutely frowned upon, but it's not illegal. You're not going to get stoned to death if you do it. None of that's going to happen. This is a religious society, 
where, we, where spiritual purity is king. And this is the one that Jesus enters into. He enters into a very different demographic than ours. Okay? And he's not over in the Decapolis, over in the, the far side of the sea where no one cares about morality. He's inside of the great city itself. He's inside of Judea. He's inside of the place where the religious elite are. And the Pharisees catch a woman caught in adultery. And here's what they're going to do. They are going to test Jesus, and they think they've got him in checkmate. They think that he's done. Because, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. Check it out. Uh, and he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, right? Like, the religious don't care about this woman. Like, imagine your horror if you were a woman, particularly in a religious context, even in a modern American context, you're caught in adultery, and whether or not they let you get dressed or anything, they're not throwing you before the court, and people are standing around, and all of the religious elite are staring at you. Right? It's the scarlet letter. This is, this is who you are. This is who you, you are not a, a woman anymore. You are not someone's daughter. You are not, you don't have a name. You are the woman caught in adultery. And, and the Pharisees don't care. She's an object. She's a pawn. She's a chess move, knight to E5, to take down Jesus. And you, you have to love that in, in the middle of this scenario, Jesus refuses to play into the game that this woman is somehow a chess piece. Here's what happens. Uh, teacher. Okay, notice what they call him. What do the religious leaders call him? Do they call him master, lord, king, savior, Christ? No. They're willing to go so far as to call him teacher. That's it. Okay? Teacher. Uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So in Mosaic law in the Old Testament, if two people were caught in the act of adultery and they had witnesses, it was appropriate in the Mosaic law for them to be stoned to death. Now, anytime you see in the Mosaic law where someone has to be put to death, there was always a system by which they could make recompense for their sin in some other way. Uh, but in this scenario, they throw him before Jesus and they say, Moses commands us to stone this woman, which means she would have been taken out they would have dug a hole probably three to four feet deep. They would have put the woman inside the hole, buried her up uh, to about her chest or her, her midsection, her stomach. They would have used water to kind of sink her in to make sure she stayed put. And then the religious elite and the, the oldest and the, the most powerful would pick up stones first. And one by one, they would take turns throwing rocks at this woman until she bled to death. If you were lucky, someone with a great arm got you in the head and knocked you unconscious so that the rest of your time of life would be uh, more manageable because you would just be getting bludgeoned to death as you sat there and your corpse would be hanging sideways and it was, it was just a bloodbath. And so you have to get the stakes of this moment. This woman is thrown before Jesus, her trial is set, and based on Mosaic law, she's guilty. The problem with this is in, because Jerusalem's a vassal state of Rome, the Jews do not have permission to pronounce a death sentence on anyone because Rome is in control, which is why when Jesus was tried for blasphemy, the Jews chanted crucify him, but who did they have to go to first? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect, the Roman governor, who had to give permission for the Jews to crucify Jesus. So the Pharisees are brilliant. We'll catch this woman in adultery. If you're truly a rabbi, you'll agree with Mosaic law that she must be stoned. But if you say that she must be stoned, then here comes Rome saying that you have pronounced that you've got the power to execute people, and then Rome's going to take you down. Who do you want to take you down? Do you want the Jews to take you down, or do you want Rome to take you down? They're licking their lips. This is the perfect scenario. They've got him in checkmate. He's stuck. Finally, we're going to catch this king of the Jews. <laughs> oh, man. It's so good. Like, it's just so good. I love it. Here we go. <laughs> Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay? The question that in all of our heads right now is, excuse me, what? <laughs> you know? It's this high-stakes scenario, and here's what we see Jesus do. He listens to the accusation. He sees the situation. And when he sees the woman caught in adultery, does he know her? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Does he know this woman? Yes. 
How does he know her? John chapter 2, he has a spirit without limits. He knows every hair in her head. He was, part of the per- he was part of the function that knit her together in her mother's womb. Does he know the woman? Yes. Who knows the woman better, the woman or Jesus? Jesus? Jesus knows the woman better than she knows herself. Jesus knows no strangers. When he's walking to Calvary and he's getting spit on, he doesn't get spit on by random bystander number five. Remember this. Jesus knows them. John chapter 2, he has the spirit without limits. He knows what people think. He knows who people are. He knows where people are going. He understands everything. This woman is not foreign to him. It's not some woman he just met. It's a woman that he knit together in her mother's womb. You think this woman is of, is a, is of import to Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> he loves this woman. And he's watching the religious elite use her as a pawn. And they're unfamiliar with the fact that this woman isn't a stranger to Jesus. There's a deep love of a father for this woman. And Jesus kneels down. He starts writing in the dust of the earth. Which I think appropriately should turn all of our consciousness to one simple question. Bro, what are you doing? Or what are you writing? In the book of Jeremiah, there's a prophecy about HaMashiach HaTabo. When Messiah comes, he will write their sins in the dust of the earth. If you ask me, and there's contention on this, right? In my limited theological brain, I think this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. HaMashiach HaTabo, when Messiah comes, he will write their sins in the dust of the earth. So what's he doing? He kneels down. He looks up at the men who are accusing this woman. And if you ask me, he begins to write one by one their names, starting with the most elite, the ones who are going to throw the stone first. And he starts to write every thought that they've had, every sin they've committed, one by one. And as he looks at the first one, his name's Gamaliel, whatever his name is. And he starts saying, lust, yesterday, 4.30. He looks back up at him and he goes, hmm. Anger towards your wife yesterday, 9 o'clock. Lust, treason, lying. You stole money from the church treasury. And then it moves to the next person. He goes, ah, Micah. Micah. And you watch these men, what would they be doing? They start going like, the heck? (laughs) Right? Like, imagine, first of all, you see your name and you're like, what's he doing? You start hitting your friend. Did you tell him my name? Did you? How, how does he even know? Who? Who? <laughs> it's so brilliant. You get Jesus dead to rights, and he starts writing your sins in the dust of the earth. Here's what it says. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So after writing all their sins and laying them out, he goes, oh man, it's time to stone her, huh? Oh, cool. This is going to be great. Let's take turns. Let's take turns. I wonder if he picked up a rock of his own. And he went, okay, here's what we'll do. Whoever has never sinned before can throw the rock first. It's not going to be you. (laughs) Micah, nice. Jeffrey? Really? You poked a badger with a spoon? Are you like, <laughs> that's even wrong with you, bro. Who, has that ever been a desire? Of you? Whatever, you're out, <laughs> okay? And one by one, they just stop and stare at him. Like, how could you? Remember we asked last night, who kills Mr. Rogers? <laughs> what about this guy? What about the guy who in front of the whole town, when you're part of the religious elite, writes your name and then writes your sins underneath it? You're going, excuse me. Let's get rid of this guy. And I wonder if he's holding a rock. I wonder if Jesus holds a stone in his own hand. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. How many people are qualified to throw a rock? How many people in the history of mankind are qualified to throw a rock? And what does he do? Let any one of you who is out sin be the first to throw a stone. And then he finishes his job. Again, he stooped down and continued to write in the ground. <laughs> At this, 
Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus enters into a checkmate scenario and he simply says, here's what we'll do. Whoever's never sinned before can go first. And so he holds the rock and he says like, but neither do I condemn you. Here's what's really important as we talk about the truth about sin tonight. I wanna level with you. And, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bet for a lot of you tonight, if you've already been offended, tonight might be worse. And my goal, listen, I think this is important to understand too. My goal isn't offense. Like night one, when I tell you that there's only two kinds of people on planet Earth, children of God and enemies of God, that wasn't for shock value. That's directly out of Scripture. The problem that we have in our world, the problem that we have in modern-day Christianity, is not that we are in, intimately familiar with our sin. It's that we've justified it. We've pinned a rose on it. We've sprayed cologne on corpses and called it a good-smelling thing. And the more that we do that, the more that we continue in those things the more that we're going to miss the true danger that a lot of us are in. I believe, and I think the Bible says, the most dangerous position that you can be in, in any battle, is if you're unaware that you're in, if you're unaware that you're in the middle of a war. And, and let me tell you something that, that I think is exclusively for a group of people who come to Hume Lake. I think one of the exclusive dangers for people who come to Hume Lake is for a lot of us, this is kind of like our yearly spiritual trip that we go on, or our semi-annual spiritual trip. You might do a winter camp or something else like that, and you re-up for it every year. But our, but our belief is, because we compare ourselves to those around us, that when we get to heaven, we're so used to fooling people. We're so used to deceiving people. We're so used to getting our way. We're so used to talking our way out of a brown paper bag. We're, we're so used to, have, we have the gift of gab and we're charming and we have all these gifts that we have. And then we think one day that we're gonna meet God face to face and that somehow we're gonna run into a, a, a kind of a, a backless, spineless, impotent God who's been fooled by us. Who thinks that because you went to Hume Lake, you're a Christian and surrendered to Jesus, like going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything about you. When you walk into a gym, it doesn't make you fit. When you walk into McDonald's, it doesn't make you a Big Mac. When you walk into In-N-Out, you're not an animal-style fries. It doesn't, and when you go to Hume Lake, it doesn't make you a Jesus follower. And, and, and perhaps, I think the scariest verse in the Bible, it says in the book of Matthew, it says, on that day, when the master of the household closes the door, that means the day that you die. And you don't know when that is. You don't know when it is. I bet you a billion dollars when you asked my wife to bet how old she was gonna be when she died, she wouldn't have guessed 28. And you don't know. The Bible says you're already gambling on borrowed time. Every breath you take is a bet you're making that you're not guaranteed. And it says on the day where the master closes the door, it says many of you, the majority of all of human history will knock on the door and say, sir, let me in. Master, let me in. But the word that's used there is actually, it's a term of endearment, and it's Lord, Lord. Whenever the scripture uses two names back to back, when Jesus talks to a woman in the New Testament, he calls her Martha, Martha. And that was a term of deep endearment. That was a term of love and relationship. Martha, Martha, when Jesus is on the cross and, and re referring to Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and, and the way that he does this, it, this is a, it's a show of personal relationship. And it says, on that last day, when the, the master closes the door on your life, many will come and knock on the door and they will say, Lord, Lord, Jesus, Jesus, God, God, personal relationship. Don't we have one? And it says, I do not. And it says the master of the house will open the door only enough to look at you and go, who are you? And your response, it says in the text, the response for the majority of all of humankind will be the same. What do you mean, who am I? You taught in our streets. I went to the church. I went to Hume Lake. Remember that one song? He won't, my hands were up. Like, I wasn't even like carry the TV hands raised. I was like field goal hands raised. You know what I mean? Like, I was up here, you know? 
And me- remember how many wor- bad words I didn't say? Remember when I was on the football team and I put Philippians 4.13 on my eye black? What do you mean? You don't know who I am. It says the response of the master of the household is to continue shutting the door. And he says, away from me, evildoers. And they will go to the place of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. That should scare the crap out of a lot of us. And the Bible says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. Another phrase the Bible loves to use again and again and again is a simple phrase, do not be deceived. Why would anyone ever tell you do not be deceived? Because you run great risk of being deceived, right? No one tells you do not be deceived about obvious things. Do not be deceived. If you eat that pine cone, it's gonna hurt. We would go, uh, duh, Frederick, right? I understand that. But the Bible says this. It says, be careful that you are not deceived, for a time is coming and has now come where the people will not listen to sound doctrine. They're not going to care what's true. They will listen to whoever appeases their itching ears and follow empty and blind philosophies. The Bible says, don't be deceived. There's empty and blind philosophies being told to you every single day, and a generation is coming and has now come where instead of seeking out sound doctrine, what does the Bible actually say? We will just run to whatever teacher is able to appease our itching, tickling ears and tell us what we want to hear. For a lot of you, that's gonna be your response even here at Hume Lake. You're gonna go, that Justin Bieber guy up on that stage, remember that five kids? He did not talk the way that I liked. He did not say what I wanted him to say. And so you'll find some progressive theological teacher who will tell you exactly what you want to hear, but it won't be the truth. And the Bible warns us, do not be deceived. Why? Because we run a great risk of just walking to whoever tells us whatever we want to hear. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Do not be deceived with the the shifting shadows of this world and the, the philosophies and the empty promises of culture that we don't appeal to the truth according to God, but we appeal to the truth according to man. Do not be deceived. That truth cannot save you. I'm going to tell it to you exactly how it is tonight, not because I want to scare you or because I want to have shock value, but because I deeply and desperately, like you wouldn't believe, love you. I do. I really love you. And I've never been more passionate about the gospel. When you watch someone that you love take their own life and you watch the destruction that sin has, but then you understand the glory of resurrection and that my wife lives because my redeemer lives, you just kind of throw all caution to the wind. I remember getting up on this stage when I first started teaching in 2013 and I had a desperate plea that I would be liked. I don't care if you like me. I want you to know Jesus. Okay? I want you to be saved. Because after years and years of studying what is true and what is not and what philosophies are real and what aren't and being an apologist and walking through the grief and the pain and the suffering of life, I can tell you one thing for certain. I don't even know if I know more than one thing for certain, but I know this. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth and is the only real life. And the book that we read is not some system of fairy tales and fables. It is the only way for you to understand the God of the universe and through that lens to understand yourself. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about yourself. And we have perpetuated this idea that the word sin, here's what it is. Sin is any thought, word, action, or attitude that rebels against how we were made. It's any thought, word, action, or attitude that fails to live up to Jesus' perfect standard. And we diminish sin. Do you want to know why we diminish sin? Because we all have sinned. Romans chapter 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So our culture has done everything we can to make sin kind of seem like if it was a, uh, if it was a crime, it would be like petty theft loitering. And then we turn around and we look at God and we go like, are you serious? For loitering? The punishment for loitering is hell? This is our, our attitude towards sin is kind of this relax because we've been deceived. You see, here's what sin is in the eyes of a holy and perfect God. 
This is an incommunicable attribute of God. It means you, you would, you'll, you, I will never understand it. You'll never understand it. You don't know what it's like to be perfect. To be in the presence of sin while you're perfect. You can be in the presence of sin when you're super messed up. That's what I do all the time. I'm a messed up, crooked soul in the presence of sin. I go like, not that big of a deal. Imagine being a perfect and holy God. And then imagine you have created the world perfectly and you've put man and woman in relationship with one another and with yourself. And then man rebels against you, commits mutiny and says, forget you, God, I'm gonna do my own thing. That's what sin is. Sin is cosmic treason. God has this perfect plan laid out for us, this perfect purpose for your life, and he's created mankind perfectly, and we said, I'm going to do things my own way. If you live in a kingdom way back in the day, and the king sets forth, this is what it means to live in my kingdom, and you say, I'm the king of the kingdom, what are you guilty of committing? Treason. What's the punishment for treason? Death. And you know what? A lot of us go like, well, that's because that's he's the king. If you commit treason against your sister, no one cares, right? How many of y'all ever hit one of your siblings? Yeah, for sure, right? I grew up with two brothers, an older one and a younger one. I hit them all the time. The worst thing that ever happened, I might get grounded or whatever. Do you want to know why? Because my brother's a nincompoop, and I, I hit him, and it's not that big of a deal. And he's my brother. We are, uh, we are almost equals. He's sinful. I'm sinful. A lot of times he deserved it, right? Very rarely was it just like an unprovoked attack on him. Let me ask you another question. Don't raise your hand for this one. How many of you ever hit your mom? Don't answer the question. But how many more of us in this room just winced when we went, oh, that would be bad. I don't know about you, but if I hit my mama, it would be the last action I ever performed on planet Earth. It'd be the last thing I ever did. You see, and that's just a jump. And if I said, if I asked you, what should the punishment be? What's the punishment difference between hitting your brother and hitting your mom? You'd go, bro, remarkably different. It's not the same thing. And if I asked you why, you would go, authority power. In some cases, innocence. My mom's not trying to get my goat. My mom's not trying to hurt me. She's not in competition with me to be the best son. If I hit her, it'd be, now let me ask another question. How many of you have ever punched a police officer before? Okay, <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you punch your sister, normally cares, right? Whatever, get a slap on the hand. You punch your mom, gets a lot worse. You punch a police officer, you can go to jail, right? You go to jail for a long period of time. And we understand that the more that authority gets higher, the more that the punishment for said action increases, right? Most of us have never punched the president. You wouldn't make it. If you get close enough, right? No matter what he's talking about, you're going to get, right? They're going to gun you down. All the guys, hey, okay, yeah, yeah, punch him. Okay, yeah, take him down. Take him down, take him down. That's what would happen, right? Eagle eye, eagle eye, take down, okay? We got a bogey, and you're out. You know what I'm talking about? And now you need to make an infinite leap. If we understand, yeah, an increase in authority equals an increase in punishment, an increase in punishment, and we're talking levels and increments that are like this. Yes, it gets worse, it gets worse, and each level gets significantly worse, right? Now I want you to take an infinite leap up to the God of the universe. A perfect and holy God and we've committed treason against him. Not only that, he gave us his one and only son to die on a cross for us. And a lot of us who are still living in a state of rebellion have said, that sacrifice of your son was meaningless. I don't even need it. You sending Jesus to be crucified, humiliated, struck down on that tree was unnecessary because I don't believe in it. I don't trust in it. I don't even think I have any part with it. The deception that we have, too, is we use these phrases in church like, oh, well, you know, we're all broken. We're all messed up. But sometimes we act like sin is something that happens to us passively. Oh, you know, you, you know how hard it is when you live in a messed up world. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been caught in my share of situations where you know, I probably haven't done the best thing. That's not, that's not our sin character. and That's not our sin nature. Our sin nature is not, not that we are all victims of some kind of cosmic conspiracy for me to get caught possibly doing wrong things. The Bible says we are active participants in the rebellion against God. You're a liar. 
You're an adulterer. You're a deceiver. You're a murderer. You, this is what the Bible says. When Jesus comes to planet Earth, he doesn't come and go, guys, chill. You guys are taking this sin thing way too seriously. He doubles down. He goes, you have heard it said that if you commit murder, you are guilty of that. But I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Then the book of James comes along and says, if a man stumbles in one part of the law, they're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Which means in the eyes of a perfect and holy God, if you've ever sinned in your life, you're guilty of every sin possibly imaginable. You've broken the whole law. So knock it off with this nonsense of like, well, you know, I guess I'm not perfect, right? Those are our favorite things. Well, I'm, we love to say that. Well, every, no one's perfect. I'm just human after all. And then we always point next to us as if the guy next to us is worse than us. Until eventually, the last guy points at the worst man who's ever lived, and we all say, well, I might not be a very good person, but at least I'm not Hitler. Why? We all think Hitler. Hitler's like the pinnacle of human messed upness. And we all eventually go, well, I might not be, but at least I'm not Hitler. Like, that's our standard of good in our world. I'm going to give you three deceptions that we believe that make talks about sin difficult for us as a culture to talk about, that, that, that make discussions of hell really difficult to talk about. There are three deceptions that we have that for a lot of us, it'll be the reason we don't follow Jesus. And I told you from the beginning of the week, that, that's an absolutely appropriate response to hearing the gospel of Christ is to say, I want nothing to do with it. But I want you to be informed as adults about what the implications of each decision is. Tonight, we're going to end by talking about these three deceptions. Please hear it through my deep love for you. Whenever you know someone who is in deception, about to walk into a situation where they're going to be hurt or they're going to be in pain, if you love them, you would say, stop, right? If someone thought that there was a, there was a, a platform, if, like, if this was the edge of a cliff, but they were convinced there was another platform right below it, and they were going to take a picture, and you, you were like, well, they think there's a platform. Would you not stop them? Of course you would. If you love them, you would say, bro, stop. And they would go, no, there's a platform. And you would say, no, you've been deceived. And I'm not going to let you walk into further deception because you're going to get really, really, really hurt. This is what the conversation about sin is. Look, you don't know you're heading for a cliff. And you don't even know that you don't even know because that's what deception is. We're not aware of it. That's what deception, that's the core of deception. Let me give you three things. Number one, the deceptions that we believe. Number one, I'm a good person. This is the deception. We believe fundamentally that we are good people. The, the question has to come in, and we have to ask it simply. Based on who? Based on what? What standard of good? Right? I remember when I was a kid, I, I, I played on a, a soccer team, right? It was a club soccer team in Bakersfield. It was, it was fun. Anyway, every year, the parents would go out, and they would do like a parent soccer game for like the last practice of the year. The parents would come out, and they would all... And the best dad out there was awful. He was terrible. He would never make the soccer team that we were on, but in the group of dads running around and pulling their hips and straining their muscles and stuff like that, he was the best one. And so if you got in the car and your dad, and he was your dad and he said, and he asked you, was I good? You would probably say, you were the best. But you were the best of a group of loser dads that didn't know how to play soccer, right? <laughs> so were you good? Yeah, sure. If you put that same dad on a professional soccer field, are they good now? No, it completely changes. Who you align yourself with changes the idea of whether you're good or you're not good. And we've confused the word good so much in our culture, right? If I throw a baseball at your grandma from 100 yards away, was that a good throw? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super good throw. But am I a good person? No. So I'm good, but I'm not good, right? You see, you see how confusing that word is? It's deceptive in, in, in and of itself. Here's what the Bible says. When Jesus speaks to us as mankind, he first of all makes it very clear. Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one that's good, not even one. No one is good. And a lot of us, the majority, this is crazy, the majority of Americans, when asked, and I'm not trying to insult you, but that, because that means there's a lot of people in here who this would be your answer. But don't be deceived. The majority of Americans, when asked, why would God let you into heaven? 
what do you think the first word out of their mouth is? I. If anyone ever asks you why you're going to heaven and you start with I, you've missed the gospel. And the majority of them, they finish a sentence by saying, I try to be a good person. Or I'm basically a good person. Or I do my best to do right by people. In the most loving way possible, if you meet the God of the universe face to face someday, and you will, and he asks you why I should let you into heaven, and you start with how good you are, you must remember the standard of goodness in the eyes of a holy and perfect God is not your friends. It's not the best person on planet earth. It's not Mother Teresa. It is his son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect. When the Bible asks you, are you good? That's way too low of a bar because the word good for us is really convoluted. When Jesus speaks to a man in Mark chapter 10, he's a rich young ruler, and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember what Jesus' response is? He says, why do you call me good? Because no one is good except for God alone. You see, when the Bible uses the word good, it means perfect. When God, Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's not our definition of good. It doesn't mean not great. Not bad. That's what we mean by good. I'm basically a not bad, not super good person. When God looked at all that he had made and he called it good, do you think he meant sufficient or do you think he meant perfect? Perfect. Tov ma'av. That's what it says. This was perfect. The standard of Christianity, if you want to get into heaven on your own merits, you can. Here's how you do it. Be perfect. Here's the problem. If you were born to human parents, you're already sinful. The day you were born, you already fell short. And it's not like that was the only time you've done it, right? We repent every day. We make it worse and worse and worse. And we lie and we cheat and we steal and we deceive. And we gloat and we are proud and we are deceptive and we do everything. Don't act like sin is some passive thing happening to you. You are the problem. I am the problem. I love the question that's been asked to me so much in the past couple of days. Why, if God knew all the evil in the world, why doesn't he just stop it? Would you be comfortable if he started with you? Why doesn't he eliminate all the evil in the world? Would you be comfortable if he started the elimination of evil in the world with you? Well, I'm not evil. Based on what? Based on Hitler? Up against the perfect and holy God, you are absolutely evil. I am remarkably evil. We don't like that word. But the reason we don't use it, and I think we should more often to align ourselves with our biblical relationship to sin, is because if I don't think I'm evil, I don't think I need salvation. If I don't think I'm evil, I don't think I need a cure. If I'm just misunderstood, then I think one day I'll meet God and he'll understand me properly. That's not the biblical case. To think that we are essentially a good person is to mistake everything the Bible says about what we need. And you might think to yourself, well, I do a lot of good things. Here's what the Bible says about the good things you do. The good things you do in front of a perfect and holy God to try to earn your way to salvation is like a pile of dirty, used rags. And the rags that the Bible is talking about are the grossest kind of rags you could possibly imagine. I'll let your mind wander to wherever you want to go. God says, Take every mission trip you've ever gone on. And without the Holy Spirit and without surrendering your life to Jesus, if you're not in Christ and you're still an enemy of God and you do good things and you build wells and you do all that and you pile up in front of God and say, look, I'm a good person, God's response in his holiness will be disgusting. Even every act that you just did was an extension of your own selfishness and your own pride trying to earn your way to heaven when you couldn't make it there. Friends, listen to me in deep love. You are not a good person you will not make the cut. You are not righteous. You are not right with God if you are not in Christ. You are his enemy. Secondly, all paths lead to God. This is one of the most common ways that we're deceived in our culture. And this is how it's asked to me all the time. Chris, are you telling me that if a foreign culture that is, um, ev everyone in that culture is uh, a Muslim, or everyone in that culture is Mormon, or everyone in that culture is fill in the blank, 
and they're all seeking God. They just have the wrong idea of who he is, that God would really send them to hell. My response would be in the, in the most loving way possible, that's not what I said. That's what the Bible says. And this notion that we have in modern American culture of this coexistence of different religious belief systems as if that's in any way copacetic or cogent is completely intellectually irresponsible. Let me help you out with one definition. In the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, first of all, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The basis of, Christian, of Christianity is that we believe that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter who was raised in Nazareth and born in Bethlehem was raised on the shores of Galilee. He preached a gospel that was unlike anything we've heard before. He was tried for blasphemy. He was crucified. He was God in Abad, fully God and fully man. And in his crucifixion, he was buried. And three days later, he came back from the dead and pronounced the power to make dead things live again. And that's why we have trust and faith that we will live again too. Christianity. Mormonism. Jesus is the brother of Satan. Jesus is a God subservient to the God of our universe who is from a planet near a star called Kolob. That God is one of a multiplicity of an infinite number of gods. And if you work hard enough, you do all that you can, God will do the rest and get you to heaven. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not there to save your sins. It was to save you from original sin, but his was not complete penance for your salvation. We're not even talking about the same Jesus. In Islam, Jesus does not die on a cross. Only someone who looks like Jesus died on a cross. And Jesus was rescued in the last minute. He is not God himself. Jehovah's Witnesses. God is n Jesus is not God. He is, a, he is subservient. He's a powerful. He's the archangel Michael, but he is not God himself. The only people who believe that religions can coexist and that they can all lead to the same God are people who've never studied the religions. If you take even a beginner's course in all of them, you're going to go, oh, wait. You can't believe opposite things about Jesus and both be a path to God, especially if Christianity is true, it eliminates all of the other belief systems. In one verse, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one experiences heaven unless they come through me. Is that offensive? Only if it's false. If it's true, it's the most loving thing he could have said. Another reason that I want to kind of take apart this deception. I want you to do a, a, a kind of a role play with me real quick, okay? If you believe that all paths lead to the same God and that all paths will lead us to heaven and, and, if, and if this person through Buddhism just tries to, be, to live a good life and this person through Islam just tries to seek the beliefs of the Quran and this guy just tries to do this and this guy's an atheist but he tries to be a good person and, and so we're all gonna get there and no one's gonna go to hell and universality and love wins and all this other stuff. Here's, let me give you one more analogy and, and hopefully this kind of sets into your heart. Imagine right now that this building caught on fire. And as it catches on fire, we realize we got to get out of here quick, really quick. And as we start to realize the immediacy of what's going on, someone in the back screams, all the doors are locked, and the panic sets in, and people start losing it. And you all turn back to the stage, and you're like, what do we do? Right? I don't know why you would ask me, because I'd be like, Odie, right? But pretend, just pretend that I'm up here, and you go, what do we do? He said, all the doors are locked. And I knew that when they constructed this chapel, they actually built a room with a fire extinguishing system inside of it, but they put it in a doorway that was only big enough for a child to get inside of. As we look around, we try to look for someone. They, 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 they wouldn't be able to be more than two or three years old to fit through this door. But we know that the only way to save is that someone is going to have to give up their child. And as we look around, you look in the back. He's not here right now. Don't look in the back. But as you look around, you realize that my son Leonidas is back in the back. We call him Leo. And everyone's minds turns to the same solution. And you look at me and you watch me realize the same thing that you just realized. I'll send him in. The problem is the way that the door has been set up is as soon as he pushes the button to extinguish everything, it closes and he burns instead to, it, to begin the, the fire sprinkler system and save all of us. And now you look at me and you think, there's no way, he said that he loves us, but there's no way he loves us enough to do that. And then you watch me as I say, Leo, come up here, Bubby. And I take him over, and I have a discussion with him. It's just me and him. And I just say, hey, listen, who loves you more than anything? He's going to say, Daddy. And I'm going to say, yeah. Do you know, you know how much we love these students here? Remember we talked, we prayed for them. Remember we prayed for them last night? Pray for the students, that God would know them. He would soften their hearts, that, they would turn to, that we would turn to Jesus. 
But in order to save them, this is going to have to be our last conversation here and now. But you've got to know that I love you more than anything. And right now, remember how we love superheroes? I need you to be a superhero for me. And there's just nothing inside of me that would be able to stand this moment because of how much I deeply love my boy. And then we watch him enter inside and push the button and the door closes and the confusion and the pain of that moment and the sound of that moment would be unbearable for almost all of us. But for no one more so than me, because that's my boy. And when we finally came to our senses, someone goes and pushes on one of the doors again and it opens. And then someone else, seeing what happened, pushes on another door, and that opens too. Someone pushes on another door and opens, and that one opens too. And everyone starts to realize, these doors weren't locked. All these doors were open. Someone just mistook a jammed door for a closed door, but all these doors are unlocked. And you look at me, and with a sense of pleading, with a sense of remorse, and with a sense of sorrow, you look at me because you know I just sacrificed my son for you. But then my response to you is, I know. I know they're all unlocked. I know salvation could go through this door, Mormonism, this door, Islam, this door, Jehovah's Witnesses, this door, believe in yourself, this door, pop psychology, this door, atheism, this door, be a good person, and this door, Buddhism. I know they were all unlocked, but what I thought would be really neat is to also have a system of salvation where a dad kills his kid, and everyone believes in that too, so just wanted to make another way. Is the God of the Bible still a loving God? He would be a sadistic child abuser. He goes from being the loving God of the universe. If the only way that we could be saved was the sacrifice of his only son, we should bow down and worship him and surrender our life to him because he is the great God of love who has sacrificed everything on, on our behalf. But if there's another way for you to get to heaven, then his sacrifice is completely null and void and he's a sick psychopath. So for us to say, don't worry, all paths lead there, would be to say, God, you killed your son when I could have just chosen Buddhism or I could have just tried to be a good person. It makes no sense whatsoever. The notion of coexist, coexist in terms of love and respect for one another, you better believe it. That's what we're called to do as Christians. But coexist in terms of all of our ideas are co-equal and all of them are going to lead to the cross, all of them are going to lead to salvation, false. Nothing could be further from the truth. Thirdly, and lastly, to understand we are, first of all, we're not good people. We need help. We've perpetuated our sin. We've made our case worse. We deserve hell. Secondly, not all paths lead to God. If it is not through Jesus, it is to hell, period. And number three, a loving God would not send people to hell. Let me ask you a question that I think when I ask it is going to cause a lot of us to probably perk up a little bit. But go with me on it. Can God do whatever he wants to do? Can God do anything he wants to do? Does his omnipotence, omnipotence, all-powerful nature preclude that the God of the universe can do anything he wants to do? Yes or no? Help me out. No. There's quite a bit that God can't do. Let me tell you why. God is not a nonsensical God. God cannot do something illogical. God can't make a four-sided triangle. He can't make a married bachelor. He can't make a burrito so hot that he can't take a bite of it. These are very popular questions. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't pick it up? It's nonsense. God doesn't participate in nonsense. Secondly, God cannot do anything that goes against his character. Could Jesus have sinned when he was here on planet Earth? If he wanted to. Nope. Why? 
It's called the impeccability of the divine sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus doesn't sin, not because he looks at sin and makes a decision. It's because it is in his nature to always do the will of his father. Why are you and I so confident when we come to the cross of Christ and repent that he will forgive us? Because it is in his character to do so. And our God never goes against his character. The promises and the assurances that we have as Christians is because God is limited in the fact that he always resides inside of his character and his nature. Always. He never lets go of part of his nature. Ever. He can't go against it. Could God all of a sudden come down and go, remember when I said rape was wrong in scriptures? I've changed my mind. Can he do that? Can he do that? He can't do that. He's limited. It would go against his nature of divine sovereign justice to do that. He can't do it. And a lot of us then, when we look at our sin, we go, I committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. Why then am I going to experience forever and eternity apart from God in hell? Because his nature and character necessitates it. God, do you remember the end of the story of the woman caught in adultery? Does Jesus say the phrase, not guilty, to the woman? Does he say, your adultery, not that big of a deal to me? No. Does he say, you were caught in adultery last week? I caught a woman that was in two kinds of adultery, so you're good. Compared to the people around you, it's not that bad. The religious leaders, you see what I wrote on the ground? They're terrible. You're not that big of a deal. Go ahead and go. He doesn't. He says, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Here's why this is important. It is, it is of the utmost importance that we understand that God can't go against his character because it's what guarantees us who turn to him, Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised from the dead, you will be saved. God doesn't have a bad day. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't readjust scripture. Do you want to know why your Bible is bound? Because God doesn't change. Culture changes. It syncretizes. It morphs. It conforms to what modern thought is. God does not. He is bound by the perfect limits of his character. Man, God is powerful enough to accomplish anything that is inside of his character and inside of his will. So we ask the question, can a loving God send people to hell? There's two things you must understand. First of all, hell was made exclusively for Satan and his demons. When we rebelled against him, we were all on a highway to hell, all of us. God in his sovereign grace has made a way for his enemies to come to him. Remember how offended we were on night one? You called me your enemy, but check this out. Here's what Romans says. While we were still enemies of God, he sent his son into the room to push the button to be extinguished and killed so that you could be set free. But that doesn't mean you're going to take it. That doesn't mean you're going to do it. But this is what God does even for his enemies. That's what God has done for all of us. Whether you're a child of God in this room or you're an enemy of God, know this. The cross is God's great love extension to you saying, I have made a way when there was no way for my enemies to become children, for objects of my wrath to become objects of my love. And we get really bent up on what hell is, right? What is hell? Let me help you with theology real quick. What is, does God love, this is a very important question, does God love all people? I love that you're thinking. You're not just yelling at me. Does God love all people? How do we know that? Good. Give me Bible. For God so loved and throw poi. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed him should not perish but have eternal life. So does God love the world? Yes. But does God love the world? There's a big difference there. Let me tell you what the difference is. If you ask me, Chris, do you love children? Guess what I'm going to tell you? Yeah. Do you love your children? Do you love children of the world the same way that you love Peyton? No. When we tell people, don't worry, God loves you, you must understand this. God has extended what the Bible calls his common grace to all mankind. 
okay? This is important to understand the theology of hell. Go with me on this. This is what we're going to conclude on. But this is very important for you to get because our idea of hell is often caricaturized and deceived, and so we don't have a good picture of what it is, okay? Listen, All, every good and perfect gift that you experience here on planet Earth is a gift from the, the Father of lights, the Bible says. Every good and perfect gift. What are the good and perfect gifts in your life? Joy, comfort, peace. You can have a good steak, and you can enjoy it right? If you go to the beach and you ride in the waves and you have this kind of supernatural experience where you're like, whoa, that, bro, that was sick, right? Whatever it is. If you're a murderer and you are a child of God, if you are a, uh, a pastor in a church and you've devoted your whole life to Jesus and you're a genocidal maniac and you both sit under the, the, a tree on the beach and feel the breeze, does one of them feel it better than the other one? No, this is called God's common grace. God does, in a very real sense, love all people. He's extended his son to them. He has given them the common grace of the world. Whether you're a murderer and on par with Hitler or you are a blood-bought child of the most high God, we both can enjoy food. We both love a good rain at the right time. We love the smell of freshly mown grass. Maybe you don't, but whatever. We, we can all experience these things. And do you know what the Bible says? You know the reason for that? God's loving kindness is beckoning the non-believer to come to him. God is with every breath you take and every joy that you have and every laugh that you've been given and every pull of the Kajabi can-can rope and every excitement that you have at camp and every new crush and every experience of comfort and joy in your life is God saying, this is a gift from me. I want to draw you to myself. It is God's loving kindness that often leads us to repentance. Hell is a place where God is not. Hell is a place where everything that we take for granted about being in the presence of God here on planet Earth is gone. Which means what is hell? If we experience the common grace of God's presence here on planet Earth, and with that is replete with comfort, joy, pleasure, enjoyment, future, understanding, uh, comfort, peace, all these things are what we take for granted than what is hell. It is a place where all those things are void. Imagine being somewhere where there is no light, there is no peace, there is no comfort, there is no enjoyment, there is no encouragement, there is no sanity, there is nothing. That's what this world would be without God. That's what your life would be if God wasn't extending to you, even if you were an enemy of God, his common grace in this very moment. Why are you at Hume Lake? Why are you hearing the truth? Because God is, loves you and he's calling you to turn from your life of sin. You're not here on accident, friend. You're not here because the person that was supposed to go got COVID and you came in last minute. Bull, you're here because the God of the universe has drawn you to himself and he wants to have a conversation with you. Make no mistake. These deceptions are gonna lead us somewhere really bad. We are not good people. We need a transcendent help from a savior. Not all paths lead to God. It is only through Jesus. Don't think you're gonna get help any other way. There is no other name given to men by which we can be saved, the scripture tells us. And lastly, if you're confused about how God is gonna send, a loving God would send good people to hell, first of all, what's the first problem with that sentence? A loving God would not send who to hell? Good, good people. There are no good people. And a loving God, we've forgotten part of his character, which is also his justice. C.S. Lewis makes a really good point. He says, look, God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is for anyone who here on earth when they were alive said, God, I want nothing to do with you. God then gives them the desire of their heart for all of eternity. I want nothing to do with you, God. And then God says, your wish is my command forever. You'll have nothing to do with me. But we don't know. We've been borrowing all the common graces of God all the time. And what is hell when God is absent? the peace and the joy and the comfort and the, and the encouragement and the joy of life is all stripped away. And that's why when we hear the phrases of hell in scripture and the descriptions of hell, it's weeping, it's gnashing of teeth, it's darkness, it's confusion. It is utter chaos. Why? Because God is absent. And I love you too much to not tell you that without Jesus, that is our destination. And tomorrow night, we're going to walk through the best news imaginable, the story of the gospel, of how we who are enemies of God can become children of God. We who are objects of wrath can become objects of his love. And we who are destined for an eternity in the darkness and utter chaos, weeping of gnashing of teeth, can become destined for an eternity with him in his presence forever. And tonight, we just kind of sit in the, in, in the turmoil of this moment, understanding
two things. You are far worse than you possibly understood. But you are also so phenomenally more loved than you could have ever imagined. And the gospel of tomorrow night brings with it the good news of how dead men can become alive again in Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we surrender this moment to you, as we enter into conversations and we, we kind of tease out these thoughts and these ideas and we bring to the forefront these deceptions that we've believed, we know that even right now the enemy and, and, and our flesh and the deceptions of this world is trying to play games with us. That although the Bible is so clear on the topic, we have, some of us have 15, 16, 17, 18 years worth of deception we're trying to undo in this moment because all of our thoughts of morality and faith and salvation are all based on sound bites and extremes of culture. And we have never given you a say into the equation of salvation. We've asked the world if we're good. We've asked each other if we're good. We've put ourselves up against the worst of the universe to find out if we're good. But we've never looked in your eyes and say, God, do I lack? God, show me who I am in response to you. And God, the beauty of your character and your nature that you never let go of is we know that when the repentant heart turns to you, you always, in your consistent, unchanging nature, receive us as sons and daughters. We rely on the consistency of your character. We rely on the consistency of your nature to move us from objects of wrath to objects of your love. But God, may we not be deceived that that same character, that consistency of character is gonna mean on that last day, you will not ever excuse sin. You will never pardon sin. You will never say it's not that big of a deal and you will never say that we are not guilty for what we've committed. But you have made a way for someone to pay the price for us. Would we open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the great substitution that Jesus made on the cross as we enter into the gospel tomorrow? God, tonight, use your Holy Spirit to bring our sin to the surface that we might deal with it, that we might do business with you. We would repent of it and become acutely aware of how we will not accomplish heaven on our own. In your name we pray, amen.